we need to place um, RSE, certainly in special schools, we need to place it within the life skills end of things, because then we're supporting young people towards independence. Hello and welcome to RSHU Ready, a podcast where we talk to the leading voices in the education sector about the game-changing introduction of the statutory RSHU requirements. And it's great to have the opportunity to do a dedicated episode on how these changes relate to SEND settings. So we'll be hearing from the Sex Education Forum's Senior Relationships and Sex Education Specialist, Rachel Baker, and also from Margaret Mulholland, the SEN and Inclusion Specialist, uh, for the Association of School and College Leaders. But I'll let Rachel and Margaret introduce themselves in the intro and we'll jump straight in. So Rachel, Margaret, thank you both for joining me today for this topic. Uh, perhaps if you just say a bit about yourselves and where you kind of fit into this series, that'd be really helpful for listeners. So perhaps Rachel, if we start with you. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Rachel Baker. I'm the Senior Relationships and Sex Education Specialist at Sex Education Forum. I'm a teacher. Um, my background before teaching was sexual health, and I specialise in working with young people who are marginalised from education for various reasons, um, specifically behavioural difficulties and autistic spectrum conditions. I have been a PSHE department lead. Um, I've worked in alternate provision and special schools as a nurture-based tutor. That's excellent. And Margaret? Hi, nice to meet everybody. I'm Margaret Mulholland and I'm the SCN and Inclusion Specialist for the Association of School and College Leaders. Um, My background is in secondary teaching. I was a history teacher and a head of department senior leader for many years and then in teacher training and then latterly over the last sort of eight to nine years in um, a special setting in a large special school in London as a senior leader and teaching school director. So um, both mainstream and special uh, in relation to learning difficulties and vulnerable learners is what really fascinates me. And uh, so I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you both today. That's great. Thank you both. Uh, And I'll include a link in the description to both the Sex Education Forum and to Ask School. So colleagues can uh, have a look on the website and find a bit more out about both those organisations. So the new statutory RSHE guidance states that RSHE must be accessible for all pupils, including those with SEND. And it's page 15 of the guidance that specifically outlines what schools' duties are with regard to teaching RSHE to pupils with SEND. So what does it say? Well, there are only three paragraphs under this heading, but they do note that high quality teaching that is different and personalised will be the starting point to ensure accessibility. And also that schools should be aware that some pupils are more vulnerable to exploitation, bullying and other issues due to the nature of their SEND. They also note the importance of relationships education and RSE for SEND pupils. For example, those with SEMH or learning disabilities. Uh, And the last paragraph acknowledges that there may be a need to tailor content and teaching to meet the specific needs of pupils at different developmental stages in line with what is age and stage appropriate and the law. And separately, we know that the DfE have confirmed that this new statutory guidance is not intended to be a scheme of work, but rather a summary of core content that points towards the scheme of delivery. 
So there's no size, there's no one size fits all approach to this learning. And uh, colleagues in SEND settings aren't held to either primary or secondary content if their pupils aren't ready. So I think it's fair to say uh, that colleagues are given a lot of flexibility when it comes to teaching this content to their pupils with SEND in whatever setting that may be. Does that sound right, Rachel, Margaret? Yeah, I think it's really an exciting opportunity and it does something from the outset that good special needs education advocates for and good education for everybody, which is to tailor and nuance to the starting points of each individual. And I think it gives us that opportunity and it's explicit about it, saying actually that's what we'd like to see. So I think that's an opportunity at a whole school level for really... Um, embracing the curriculum at a cross-curricular fashion, but also centred around each individual, which is a tremendous step forward. I I think for me, the really positive part is that reflected in the guidance is firstly the word tailor, uh, rather than limit or, you know, restrict or something that had a negative um, feeling to it but to, to tailor to differentiate and to personalize so it gives schools the the go-ahead to tackle some some really quite complex themes but to do so in a way that is accessible for learners even if that learner needs something in an extremely simplified fashion compared to perhaps how you might typically ap- approach a, a complex theme yeah um, age and stage appropriate is, is terminology that gets used a lot. I wonder if it's just kind of unpacking what that might look like um, in an SCND setting, because it's used a lot in mainstream as well, but I think it takes on a special significance with regard to SCND pupils. It, it really does. And I think sometimes when, when we say age appropriate, what we mean is not tackling something that's too grown up with a child who's too young to, to take on whatever the learning might be. Um, which, which is one of the definitions, but we also need to fold in the idea that a young person might need to tackle a certain topic due to their chronological age and the, the age of their body and the physical changes that they're experiencing, even if their level of cognition or their sort of learning age perhaps is quite distanced from that. And that really gives the challenge, I think, to, to schools and to teachers. It's a question I hear frequently is how do I know how much I need to include and and when do I need to put that in? But I think for me, making sure that the content covers the topics that that matter to the learner at their age, but to do so in a way that makes it accessible for their capability, that's really the the, the aim here. If if we can do that, then we are doing it. It's that nub of accessibility, isn't it? How you make something accessible. And also, as Rachel said, sort of, Rather than thinking about the volume of what we cover, it's more about how do we make those core concepts accessible. So the two in particular, public and private, I think, you know, are two really fundamental concepts within good RSE uh, experiences. And how young people access that depends on where they are at in their development. So... A great challenge for us as well, as well as that great opportunity. But as well, I think this is why assessment is so important. And I was so pleased to see assessment talked about in the guidance um, in, in a way that it hasn't been typically in, in PSHE in the past. Because unless we're baselining our young people and unless we're asking them, where are you now? 
then we we don't know what their foundation stones are that we can then build upon. And I think it's so important that we need to consider the, the learner's starting point and also really how we first get onto a topic and, and how we would proceed through a topic so that we can make sure that we're building a curriculum that works for our learners, that that is challenging enough, that it's interesting and it's not patronising, um, but it offers an appropriate level of challenge so that nobody's feeling overwhelmed or out of their depth. And bearing in mind that every learner in the room might be coming from a very different starting point in terms of their ability and also what they already know. That's great. Thank you both. Um, and as we mentioned in the introduction, the guidance says that the curriculum should be accessible to all learners, but that it may be necessary to tailor the teaching or content to the needs of some learners. Uh, so how do we know what to include or how much to say? I think that's there's some curriculum choices at a whole school level, and then there's those classroom-based choices at a more personalised level. And I think, you know... For young people with special educational needs, there's a huge spectrum we're considering when we think about SEND. You know, we're thinking about SEND settings where young people might have more complex needs, but actually where teachers know the young people very, very well and know their families very well. Um, and then on the other end of that continuum, we've got young people sitting in mainstream settings who might not be as well known or understood by teachers. So I think in terms of what we cover, we've also got to think about how well we know the individual and how effective those um, formative assessments are. You know, what do they tell us? But I think in terms of interconnected areas, you know, the whole kind of notion of personal care and hygiene, relationships and sex education, appropriate behaviour, safeguarding, those four core areas, they're the things that we need to make sure that we're not just covering in terms of the RSHE curriculum or RSE curriculum, but actually across each and every aspect of school life. So it becomes something that happens um, in the playground, something at the school gate, that actually RSE is lived and breathed as part of what we do in terms of everyday practice and teaching. Um, I think per permission to tailor is a really positive thing and it, it enables teachers to um, carve a path through the topic that really fits for the learner's individual needs. But I think we we need to place um, RSE, certainly in special schools, we need to place it within the life skills end of things because then we're supporting young people towards independence and a lot of what we do in special skills is gearing towards independence and things that might, just might never happen in a mainstream setting like the, the whole class being involved in making a cup of tea um, has a really valuable role to play in special schools because the dream for my learners when I was doing that activity is that one day in an independent home setting, you'd be able to make yourself a hot drink and not have to wait for somebody else to come and make it for you. So by for me, by putting RSE in that end of the curriculum, we're supporting young people to have skills that they can use as they make their way through life, which will include all their interactions with their friends, with their care providers, with partners and family members and and if they want to when they're old enough and they're ready if they want to have a sexual relationship those same skills will underpin that but it will help them with every aspect of their independence um, as well as the you know the things that obviously fall into relationships and sex 
Brilliant. Yeah, it's kind of this, uh, it's a spiral curriculum, isn't it? We often talk about that in PS- PSHE, this idea that at a younger age, or I suppose in, in this instance, perhaps a different learning stage, you would start with a, a, a skill or a piece of learning um, that will help you further down the line to kind of take on more advanced concepts and, and learning on your way. Uh, and that leads us in nicely, actually, into our next question, which is how can colleagues offer an age-appropriate curriculum if the physical or chronological age of their learners doesn't match up with their cognitive ability or developmental stage? This is a question I get asked more than any other question in the work that I'm doing with Sex Education Forum. Um, and, and it usually comes with a, with a real energy of angst from the teacher who's asking, as though um, the, the feeling of looking at the curriculum, you know, by the end of primary, by the end of secondary, is that that's just too hard for my learner. And I don't know how to open up this topic for them without completely intimidating them. Um, and for, for me, I think the way that we need to approach it is to peel back the layers of the topic and work out what actually it is that, we, that we're trying to say and in an order of complexity. So we know where that first step on, on the ladder is, because approaching a really complex subject like masturbation, for instance, but with with teenage learners, but who were perhaps are working at a, a P level is going to be very difficult because the, the way that we talk about the, you know, the body and the, the things that people want to do and like to do is going to also need to be differentiated greatly. So what I'm thinking is that we need to peel back those layers. We need to uncover that critical little kernel of information, that golden nugget that if we get that bit across, then we are on, on the way to understanding. Um, so with a topic like masturbation, it might be that you need to backtrack and go back to public and private. That might be the, the place to start. It might be that we talk about rules about the fact that we are allowed to touch our own body but there's rules about where we're allowed to do that touching and what kind of touching it might even be further back than that for some learners it perhaps even a basic understanding that the learner themselves is a physical being or perhaps that the hand that they can feel on their arm or their face is that their hand or your hand it might be that we're there now obviously that feels a very long way from masturbation as it's talked about in the guidance and as we as we would explain a topic um to, you know to talk about things like sexual pleasure but it is somehow the first step on that journey towards it and i think if that's the level that our learners are at and if that's the appropriate level to be going with then we need to feel confident that we are doing enough if that's as much as the learner can can really take on board at this time and we can revisit we can come back to it tomorrow if need be or in a year's time and keep offering that little next step as and when the learner is able to embrace it that's great thanks rachel uh, and i guess it's, it's the same for health education as well when we think about pupils kind of keeping themselves safe for the foundational skill set and knowledge um, that that is helpful to young people to help them cross a road uh, can be the same knowledge that's helpful or useful further down the line with different interactions. I suppose it's also thinking about how children learn. And so in shaping your curriculum and in defining your teaching, you're thinking about what's the pre-learning that's needed for this child? Where are the opportunities for overlearning, so that... Um, you know, that, that that spiral curriculum is lived and breathed. And I think that's what's 
What's a great opportunity with the new guidance is really the the shared endeavour. So that actually what we're what we're thinking about is where do we want to get these young people to? You know, what's our ambition? What's our shared expectation? And if that's understood um, at a whole school level, then that reinforcement, whether it's in tutor time, whether it's in playground activity, whether it's in the canteen at lunchtime, then those endeavours can be shared. But I think it's also about then deciding what's the core language that we use as a school, you know, and how do we make sure that everybody is using that language? How do we ensure that consistency of message that's really important for young people with learning difficulties? And I think a lot of, a lot of schools are really embracing that at the moment, you know, in, in planning, they're really embracing that opportunity to involve everybody, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, I think the point about language is a really important one. Uh, I know, for instance, that the PSHE Association planning framework for pupils with SEND uses kind of consistent language. Um, I just wondered, Margaret, you mentioned earlier about the unique relationship that a lot of special schools often have with their parents. It feels like that could be a real advantage when it comes to the consultation process for, for engaging those parents in RSE. Uh, I just wondered if it would be worth maybe touching on that. Yeah, um, so important. Um, Parents are important for all children, but I think particularly when we think about young people with learning difficulties, um, special settings and mainstream schools are very good at building on the positive interactions with parents and empowering parents. And I think the opportunity for transparency about how we're going to approach RSHE is just incredibly important. So instead of being retrospective and and referring back to what we're already doing, it's so important to uh, front load the experience and the conversation with parents to ensure that they're really clear about what's going to be covered and that they can support that endeavour going forward. It's interesting, isn't it, through this period of remote learning that many parents have become more involved in understanding what's covered within the curriculum and feel quite empowered by that. I mean, challenges of home learning aside, they're actually thinking about, you know, the more I know, the better I can follow through on this conversation, the more I can reinforce those concepts back in the home. And that's exactly what we want. So I think the opportunity to build on that homeschool communication. We're in a really good position for that post-pandemic, going back to school. I think we're really in a strong position. Somebody mentioned to me the other day the sort of concept of thinking about the teaching, not just in relation to the pupil, to our pupils, but actually in in relation to the parents and use the, use the sort of uh, metaphor of it's like heating a house but leaving the back door open. If we don't involve the parents, we're putting all this good work into what we're doing with the young people, but we're not actually reaping the benefits if we don't fully engage the parents and the family in our communications. I think you're absolutely right, Margaret. And I think something that's really helpful when we're engaging with parents is if we can take the voice of the children, the young people, to the parents, because 
very often parental anxieties about whether their child is ready for such and such or, you know, all of those kind of obvious and, and understandable concerns. But if, if you can show that the, the children in your child's class, including your child, have come up with these things that they're interested in and that they feel that they want to know, it can be very reassuring to parents to know that, that, that the child themselves is committed and, and wants to know this and it, it can really support parental engagement. And just to pick up again on what you said about um, a considered vocabulary around the subject, we can involve the parents in that as well, because particularly if a parent might be anxious about perhaps using a correct term, maybe an uneasiness about a word like vulva, if that's not the word we, we use at home perhaps, then having a conversation about our aspirations and our wishes for our young people. And then thinking about what term do we want to give that young person when they're an adult to describe their body parts. It, it can support the school's endeavours towards giving the correct terms with parents connecting the learning today with their child as an adult. Um, and even if it, it perhaps isn't what we want today as a parent, that it does connect with what we want for the future and, and underpins what we're trying to do. I um, listened to a webinar last week with, um, led by a Northern Ireland um, organisation covering RSE. And it was, it was so interesting, um, the story that they told, you know, not an unusual one, but just such a powerful one of a young person you know, following their chronological path uh, through life, their lived experience, that if we don't, for that young person with, say, moderate learning difficulties, address the issues that Rachel's just raised around, you know, the, the, the shared use of language, the, the comfortable use of naming body parts, etc., then actually what we, what we could see in that young person as they go through their life course is that they become even more vulnerable. And I think that's really important. You know, there's, in this webinar I was listening to, they described a young man, you know, gave a, a quick pricey of his experiences, age 17, then at 35, then at 70. But as he went into shared living, ill-equipped to talk about relationships and how to build and engage in those relationships with appropriate language, with appropriate touch, he became highly vulnerable and was removed from others. And that actually impacted the life course. And of course, I think that's quite powerful when sharing those stories with the wider school community and with parents to recognise that if we don't equip, as Rachel says, for that independent living then actually we, we, are, we are increasing the risks in that young person's life as they go forward and we're increasing their vulnerability. Yeah, it's a, it's a case of one, one thing impacting upon another, isn't it? Because in the example you've just given, Margaret, that exploitation could have possibly left that young person isolated if suddenly the trust wasn't there from his care network to kind of let him have that independence, then, you know, it has, has an effect on, on that, doesn't it? And if you think about with young people with special needs, the, the higher propensity for loneliness, the higher propensity for sexual abuse, for online harm, for grooming, we really need to put the 
priority, if you like, lens on these young people in many ways because they are at a heightened level of vulnerability. Not to say that they are not equipped. That's the purpose and point of this, isn't it? That actually equipping them better will reduce and mitigate that risk and that's really empowering. But we can even make those correct terms accessible even to non-verbal learners and I think sometimes just opening up some ways of how we might do this with schools can be really helpful. So even if a learner doesn't have the ability to name their own genitals themselves or to use the, the words, when care activities are taking place if the correct terms are there in the room then that word will then become associated with that area of the body and that process so it might be as simple as asking the the care person to use the phrase vulva or penis you know I'm going to wash your vulva because I'm helping you change your pad the learner themselves might never actually use that word themselves but that word will then belong in that private space with that activity and, and it will just support that becoming familiar and is there anything else that colleagues can do to impart these practical skills to young people with SEND so that they are able to have safe, healthy and positive relationships, including sexual relationships, when they're old enough and ready? I think placing sex education within life skills, as I've said, really helps because it allows us to be using the subject of RSE for creating and fostering independence. And it can also take some of the messages that might perhaps seem like they're just a sex education message it can filter through into all other aspects of the curriculum like expressing preference or saying no to something that you don't want even if that's having a certain flavor of ice cream or something it can allow the young person to practice those skills um, but we, we need to make sure that we're not just relying on RSE as a vehicle for these necessary skills and so we're teaching about choice and preference and diversity and negotiation across the board and that will really support young people to have safe relationships when they're older which may include sexual relationships or may not but that's that will give those underpinning skills and then being mindful with our young people with additional needs that there will become a point where we perhaps need to stop focusing on protecting the young person from things that might go wrong related to sex and support them to feel able to access that part of adult life if it feels right for them at the time and make sure that when we're talking about sexual relationships, we're, we're framing them as something that is available to young people with SEND and not something that's for other people and, and, and not for them. I think that's such an important point, isn't it? Yeah, and so... How do we also make sure that our language right from the very beginning is about those positive opportunities? And as you say, not to sort of be taking an approach that that very much is there to navigate them through the safe path. Actually, we're saying we want to expose you to these experiences, but we want to do that in a way that you are equipped and can enjoy these experiences as you go forward. Yes, definitely. And it, and it connects again with consultation, because if we can have a really thorough consultation with our young people and ask them their hopes and wishes and aspirations for their future, and then pair that up with the values of us as, as teachers in how we approach the subject and parents' hopes and wishes for the young people as well, we can create a very different culture around relationships, um, which is to do with life skills and confidence and all those positives and, and not something that young people feel that they ought to be fearful of but that they can gather genuine understanding of and, and make good choices independently 
I think that point about culture, Rachel, is just so important, isn't it? And and that kind of notion that this shouldn't be an area where people can get things wrong. This is an area where we can navigate and support, but that people should that young people shouldn't be fearful of uh, sharing back with us those experiences, those questions, those concerns and anxieties, and that that's an open door and a safe space. Absolutely. And making sure that the spaces are safe as well is such an important thing. It's something that um, a piece of research from MenCap actually highlighted that um, whilst amongst the general population, around 70% of us will cohabit with our partners, amongst our learners, when when they grow up, maybe only 3% will cohabit with their partners. And the, the reasons that came out of that research were things like a lack of opportunity to, to meet somebody um, or just a lack of privacy at, at home or a lack of really good RSE. And these are all things that we, we can really help with. Um, but it, it needs to be framed as something that is available to you rather than something that happens to others. And I think that is a big shift in the mindset, perhaps, as supporting parents to also support the school to deliver this education. It might put people in a slightly anxious place to feel this way, but that's why we need. I think we need to view far ahead and, and think about what do, what do I want for this young person when they're in their twenties or their thirties or their fifties, or you know, and and see their future because that will evidence why we're doing this now um well if it might not feel quite right with a child at, at this age and ability but we can see where we're going it will really help and and that back and forth consultation hearing our learner's voice allowing the parents to hear their child's voice and doing some work with our teachers as well to make sure that they feel confident in why we're doing this RSE and how we're going to go about doing it and bringing all of those golden threads together that's that really makes for top-notch RSE. <laughs> that CPD point is worth picking up on, Rachel, isn't it? That actually at the moment, it shouldn't just be those lead practitioners in school who are getting exposure to training and development opportunities, but everybody. You know, how are we going to embrace the whole school community to understand what our aspirations and expectations are? You know, how does it affect the bus drivers who bring the children into school? How will it affect the people working in the lunch hall? Those are the things that I think school leaders um, in our organisation are asking themselves. How can I make sure that this reaches everybody as an opportunity for development and learning? Um, and as you say, it, became, it becomes a continuous conversation that grows and builds. Definitely. And if you've got a couple of hours for CPD, I think those couple of hours are better spent um, unpicking our values around the subject rather than giving a, a sort of knowledge update. Yeah. Um, because it, there's a tendency that perhaps to do things like a sexual health quiz and talk about different kinds of STIs. But if we're not really comfortable with why we're getting into STIs with these young people, then knowing the different types is, is less helpful. And I think if I was in a position of having a, a team of teachers in just a couple of hours, I'd want to be talking about whether we agree or disagree. I'd want values continuum activities. I'd want reflective activities, people to be able to say, I'm okay with this, but not so much with that and get those things out on the table because the, the facts that we need are easier to get our, our hands on. But if, if we feel really confident and that we, we know why we're doing it and what we're going to do, then that's a, a much more helpful thing, I think, for teachers. Completely agree. 
That's great. I just wonder, Rachel, if it'd be worth maybe outlining what some of those activities could be, just to give an example. Well, you could perhaps um, have a look at some tricky questions um, and, you know, how people might approach something like um, a nine-year-old asks you, how did the baby get in the mum's belly? And maybe what is the young person actually asking? What, why have they chosen to ask that today? How would you approach it? Would, would you approach it differently if they asked you in the lunchroom to if they asked you in the PSHE lesson? And just unpick some of those things that, that go with that. Um, it could be that you're looking with your teachers on fundamentally whether, whether they're thinking that the amount of RSE they're offering is enough or too much or comparing how it was for them when they were at, at school. Um, it might be that there is some issues to just unpick in terms of experiences of maybe where things haven't gone so well, talking to parents in, in the past, maybe that's where the teacher's anxieties might be and finding the common ground. And certainly before doing a consultation, it's, it's worth devoting a bit of time to some CPD with your teachers so that we understand how we're going to go about doing this and how we can make sure that we're really hearing everybody's voice and so that our school community really feels visible and represented in, in our consultation process, which again might, might be there in that um, values-related CPD for teachers. I completely agree on the values-related CPD and, and just would flag that, you know, um, support staff in particular need to have access to that those development opportunities as do governors, I think, to be really involved in what we represent as a school, they need to be included in those professional development conversations. That's great. I think you've both covered some really key ground there. Um, I just wonder if it's worth spending a bit of time now we're at the end of the episode, just signposting, uh, just to give colleagues an idea of what's out there to help them on their way towards meeting this new statutory content. I don't know, Rachel, if you're best place to answer that one. Well, you could certainly come and visit us at um, sexeducationforum.org.uk to look at our courses, um, which we offer quite a lot that you can book on as an individual. But we can also do um, bespoke training for individual schools if there's a particular area that, that's of interest. So definitely come and have a look on there. Um, we also have um, lots of guidance around your curriculum, which you can find on, on there as well. Because there's a specific guide, isn't there, from CEF. Um, I think it's titled RSE for Pupils with SEND. Yes, and it, it's been designed to support teachers working in special school settings as well as um, working with learners who send in, in mainstream. And whoever you are as a teacher, even if you're not somebody with a send responsibility in mainstream, you, you are working with those learners with send to some extent. So it's a, it's a helpful resource to have a look through. Um, we offer some training as well for teachers working with Send in Mainstream as well as working in special schools. So there's different ways that we can approach this. Is it worth just mentioning as well that there will be a module um, coming out, a CPD module from the department for, that focuses on SEND, um, which I think will be helpful just to highlight and move this conversation forward. And obviously the resources on the... Um, send hub for the from the PSHE association are hugely helpful that's great yeah the uh, SEND hub does host a webinar as well that the DFE held uh, in September 2020 I believe or maybe later on in the year and SEF were involved with that webinar as well so you can download that on the SEND hub 
There's also the planning framework as well, which was the document we mentioned earlier on. Big thank you to both Rachel and Margaret for their contributions in that episode. And I hope those of you listening found that useful. Remember, you can find out more about the Sex Education Forum and join at sexeducationforum.org.uk. And likewise, you can find out more and join our school at ascl.org.uk. And I'll link the resources that we discussed in the description as well, so you have those. I realise I forgot to mention the PSHE Association's Effective PSHE Education in Special Education Provision uh, Crossface CPD, which may also be of interest. Uh, So I'll put a link into that as well. Thanks for listening. Take care.